Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Julia Gillard, and this is a podcast of one's own. I'm offended by the lack of women in positions of leadership and the way those that do make it are treated. Today, I help lead the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London, headquartered in the Virginia Woolf Building. In 1929, Virginia said she aspired for women authors to have the space to write in a room of one's own. Here, I want women leaders to have a podcast of one's own. I'm delighted to be able to share with you a special live version of a podcast of one's own. This episode was recorded during an event at King's College London, co-hosted by the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, and features an interview with a woman who needs no introduction, my friend Hilary Rodham Clinton. We discuss that famous speech in Beijing 25 years ago, where she declared that women's rights were human rights, the progress we've made since then, and how, as a gutsy woman, she coped in the wake of that election defeat and is continuing the fight for a fairer, more gender-equal world. Hilary, I want to start by taking you back almost 25 years ago when you stood in a very cavernous hall in Beijing at a UN meeting and you said, women's rights are human rights, humans' rights are women's rights, and the world went mad. <laughs> Can you tell us about that moment? Because we're looking forward to the 25th anniversary next year. I remember it very well because it was the fourth United Nations uh, Conference on Women. It was being held in Beijing. And we, of course, in the United States, were sending a delegation. But the UN invited me to come to speak. And I think it's a bit of an understatement to say that... Um, there were many in the administration, namely my husband's administration at the time, who were very reluctant to have me go, and members, uh, very powerful members of Congress as well, because there were several human rights issues that had sprung up at the time between the United States and China with their imprisoning of human rights activists. So it was a, a bit of a tug of war back and forth, and I very much wanted to go. The delegation was hoping I would go. And I finally, you know, said, uh, I really want to go. And my husband said, well, I think it's fine if you go. And I said, okay, fine, we're going. Then, um, <laughs> and off we went. But I also wanted to go because I thought it was important to push the envelope as far as we could about a lot of the practices, some of them cultural, some of them political, social, some of them legal, 
that were holding women back in many, many ways. And so in the speech, I spoke a lot about those actions and the impact that they had on girls and women. And then, of course, made the comment about human rights being women's rights and women's rights being human rights. In front of the official delegation that I was speaking, it was simultaneous translation in you know about 50 languages. And so nobody was responding. And if you've ever given a speech in front of a big audience and people are hunched over, they're listening hard, they're not looking at you because they're trying to hear what you're saying, it is so unnerving. I thought, whoa, they don't like me talking about the one-child policy or they don't like me saying that you know, women can't inherit property and the whole list of problems I was uh, discussing. But at the end, they did turn out to really like the speech and like the message of the speech. It was funny because I was criticizing practices, including those of our host, China. So at one point, China turned off the sound in the rest of the convention center, left it on in the room, but turned it off so people outside couldn't hear it. Fast forward, like I don't know, 22 years, I get a call from a friend of mine in Beijing who says, I'm shopping in this large department store, and they usually play music over the loudspeakers, but they're playing your speech from Beijing in 1995. And I went, that's progress. (laughs) That is progress. (laughs) What would you say have been the biggest changes for women in the 25 years? If you could pick one thing, what's the achievement? What's the thing we've gone backwards on, if anything? I think... We've made a lot of progress knocking down legal barriers to women's full participation. Some of those laws about property inheritance, uh, about voting, even driving cars, things that used to be such blatant barriers to uh, women's uh, autonomy and freedom. I think we still are struggling with a lot of the continuing attitudes about what's appropriate or not, how people think about women's lives and women's roles outside in employment or in the political system. And there is uh, a bit of a, a pushback going on in some parts of the world right now that really uh, fall into that area of culture. So, for example, just in the past two months, and literally just in the past week in one instance, in Japan, a very modern industrialized country, women were told by their labor department of the country that their employers could require them to wear high heels to work. And just in the last few days, employers in Japan have been telling women not to wear glasses to work because the employers didn't like the look of glasses on women. So despite the legal progress, (laughs) there continues to be some pushback And it is a bit stunning because in a number of these cases, and I know your institute has been looking at attitudes, people could be attached to lie detectors and say with full sincerity that they don't see what they are saying or doing as in any way prejudicial toward women. Some of it has to do with the language we used. There was a recent report about a, a large corporation in the United States holding leadership training seminars for employees, and they had a special track for women employees. And these were women already hired on the upward track to higher and higher positions. And the training session emphasized the importance of how women look, 
whereas with men, it was how they act and how they presented themselves. There were words that were very unselfconsciously used in the workplace. Women should be cheerful. Men should be assertive. I mean, this is 2019. You could be both cheerful and assertive, I think. Um, So we still face a lot of these deeply embedded attitudes that are then internalized by girls and women, which often act as artificial barriers for a lot of uh, women's aspirations and, and the larger society's expectations. I'm going to practice being cheerfully assertive or assertively cheerful. I'll work that out later in the afternoon. There are some fantastic scientists at King's College, so if they could bolt up this afternoon a time machine that could take you back that 25 years, and if you could have a conversation with that younger Hillary Clinton and explain to her what the 25 years ahead look like, would you be saying to her still go down that path because women are relying on you to forge forward? Or would you say, choose a different path? Yeah, go ahead and and forge the same path. Just recognize that uh, there are boulders and uh, sinkholes and uh, all kinds of uh, challenges along the way. Because, you know, at the time I gave that speech, I'd never had any thought of running for office myself. I was an activist. I had been, prior to the White House years, a practicing lawyer. I was involved in all kinds of causes that were important to me, particularly on behalf of uh, children and families and women. So I knew that there was a lot of work that I enjoyed doing that had nothing to do with actually being in political office. And then, uh, you know, four years later, I find myself uh, being persuaded to run for the Senate. And I had a moment that really encapsulized why I made that decision, because starting months before, people in New York had been coming to visit me, calling me, asking me to please run for the Senate. And I had been absolutely clear I would not. And I was in New York City. And it was the spring of 1999, and I was there as first lady, and we were promoting a documentary about women in sports. I was with Billie Jean King, who's featured in our book, The Book of Gutsy Women. And uh, we were at a high school, and I was invited to, you know, make some remarks. And the person introducing me was this uh, tall, you know, 17-year-old young woman who was the captain of the volleyball team. And she introduced me, and I came up to speak, and I held out my hand to thank her. And she bent over because she was considerably taller than me. And she whispered in my ear, dare to compete, Mrs. Clinton, dare to compete. I thought, wow. I go around telling women, get out there, do your best, you know, knock down the barriers. And here I am being, you know, encouraged to run for the Senate. And is it that I don't want to do it, or is it that... I'm afraid of doing it. Really, what is it? And that forced me to take a, a deep breath and think about it. And, you know, about three months later, I decided to give it a try. And the rest, as they say, is history. People in the UK who are trying to distract themselves from Brexit watch the car crash that is US politics and at least think, think to themselves, it's not just us. Um, LAUGHTER and when when they are watching that car crash, which is US politics, they want to hear from a very informed voice about what's going to happen next. So, <laughs> pre, pre, 
predictions. <laughs> uh, predictions for 2020, and I'd particularly like the odds on there being a female president after the 2020 election. Well, the odds are better by definition because there are more women running. When I ran, there were more American women in space than running for president. Um, <laughs> so I think that uh, we've, we've made progress. We're, we're kind of you know, moving right along here. I have no crystal ball. I think that it's going to be a very tough election, as they seem to be these days, probably closer than one would like or expect. And in part because we are so divided. I mean, we are really a divided nation. And our partisanship stands for many other things. It stands for acceptance or rejection of all kinds of cultural changes. It stands uh, for divides between urban and rural, between fast-growing, knowledge-based economies and stagnant agriculture, manufacturing-based economies, somewhat like what you have here in the UK. So the current contest is not even yet taken off, although our elections last forever. I so favor the UK. All right, we're having an election in two months. Get going. And so you have it. <laughs> and I mean, we're like, oh my gosh, is this ever going to end? Um, <laughs> And as somebody who's been in them, I mean, you know, they go on for years. Uh, and, and so we haven't had any voters cast their preference yet. And it's all pretty bunched up in the top, you know, four or five people, depending upon the time of day and, you know, what's in the news. And, of course, today we're starting public hearings on impeachment to just make it even more complicated. And I have a, a rather unique perspective on that. Um, and not, not for what you're thinking of. Um, but instead, because I was a lawyer on the impeachment inquiry staff back in 1974 that investigated Richard Nixon, what I call the good impeachment. Uh, and it is uh, clear that this is going to be just a absolute obsession as people are trying to figure out what it means. After all, what is a high crime and misdemeanor? We inherited it from you, and it does go back centuries. And it has to do with official misconduct, conduct in the office to abuse power, to obstruct justice. And one of the areas that the founders and the writers of our Constitution who put it in there uh, we're most concerned about is between elections when someone's actually in office and you can't remove them because they're on an election scheduled for one to three more years, what do you do if that person in office is abusing the office, is in specific words in the impeachment clause, engaging in bribery or treasonous acts? We need some kind of remedy and that's why they put it in. Uh, and the American public will hear live witnesses, um, and be able to make some judgments for themselves. And then, uh, just as we did back in 1974, we'll expect members of Congress to vote. And, I, and one of the women featured in our book is Barbara Jordan, who, if you've never heard of her or don't remember anything about her, she delivered a speech during the Nixon impeachment that was one of the great speeches, the political speeches in our country, and you know, certainly the last half of the 20th century. And she defends the Constitution. You can go to YouTube and see it. And it is so powerful thinking about it today because of the way that she uh, you know, presented uh, her case. So this is high stakes. And in our system, impeachment's like indictment. It's like the charges being made. So if the House 
votes to impeach, then it goes to the Senate for a trial, and that's a much more difficult hurdle. What happened in the Nixon impeachment is a little bit instructive because the evidence was presented, and then articles of impeachment were based on the evidence for abuse of power, obstruction of justice, contempt of Congress, and then the House committee, consisting of both Democrats and Republicans, voted. And Republicans voted for one or more of the articles of impeachment in the committee. It hadn't yet even gone to the full House. But that afternoon, after hearing the arguments and seeing Republicans vote on the basis of the evidence, Republican senators went to see Richard Nixon at the White House and said, you should resign. And so he did. I can't sit here and predict exactly what's going to happen, so we'll have to you know, see how it plays out. One feature of the British election campaign so far has been the number of women who have said that they're not going to stand again. There have been 18 women who have indicated they won't stand. And whilst the statisticians would tell you that's not a disproportionate number, given the number of men who have also said that they're going to retire, what is startling is how early in their careers they are exiting. People who have got promising careers in front of them, you would think, but they're exiting now. And the fact that many of them are expressly pointing to the abuse online and the fact that it doesn't just stay online, that it actually becomes the threat of violence in their everyday lives. What's your reaction when you see that kind of impediment for women coming into politics now? I mean, we always talk about, you know, role modelling and you can't be it if you can't see it. You know, what's that role modelling? Well, this is one of the first things that I was told by friends of mine who are current or former women members of the House of Commons or the House of Lords, that there was a growing anxiety among women members about the threats that they face. And of course, with the memory of Joe Cox, who was murdered for her political standing. So I take it very seriously. And it is fueled by these online vile attacks that are out there. But it also, it breaks into the real world. You know, just a few months ago, I was one of several people who was the target of a pipe bomb by a man who was clearly somewhat um, unbalanced, but also very committed to our current president and was targeting what he thought of as the president's enemies, including me and Barack Obama and others. Thankfully, he wasn't a very effective bomb maker, but that's no, you know, that's nothing to bank on. So I see political violence in general, the threats, the actions. I see an increase in hate crimes in our own country, accompanied by violence. And of course, we have a surfeit of weapons that people pick up and use. And so when I heard about all of these uh, people, particularly the women who weren't going to run again or were not going to run in the first place, and they attributed it to the threats that they face, that is not only a threat to individuals, that's a threat to our democracies. You know, if people are intimidated out of running for office in a democracy because of these, these hate mongers on the left or the right, motivated by whatever, you know, that's the path of authoritarianism. That's the path of uh, fascism. You know, when you are told uh, you, you are in danger or your family is, in fact, a number of these women have said that it's not just threats against themselves, it's threats against their children. So clearly something is amiss. We are 
not paying attention to what is motivating vulnerable people, extremists, ideologues, online and off. And I, I was at an event yesterday where the um, first woman commissioner of the London police was there, and she and I were talking about this. She said they take it very seriously, as they should, because unfortunately we've seen uh, what happens when we don't provide the security needed for people in politics. But isn't it just tragic that we have to think about that now? And that women in particular are making a very rational decision to protect themselves and protect their families and not run for office. We certainly do need to see big changes, but one of the things we've been trying to do here at the Policy Institute, at the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, in partnership with Ipsos Mori, the polling firm, and your team, is get to some underlying attitudes through a global poll about gender and politics and life and what it takes to succeed. And I want to take you now to a few of the results. The survey that we did globally, particularly in Britain, Australia and the US, revealed that people think men are less likely than women to need intelligence to get ahead in life, that women need intelligence more. I was just wondering, can, <laughs> can you think of a time when a super... <laughs> when a super smart woman... Uh, perhaps lost out to a man who was less intelligent? <laughs> I, 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 would, I would never say that intelligence is everything, but it is something. <laughs> the, the survey goes on. <laughs> People were more than twice as likely to say that looks are a key factor in helping women get ahead compared to men. Do you think they've got that right, that unfortunately looks still do count? Oh, 100%. And it's not just looks, because there's a, a lot of different looks that are perfectly fine and appealing. It's certain looks, you know, certain way to look. And the, the image that is expected of women, going back to the Japanese example, apparently includes not wearing glasses even if you're blind. You're going to run into walls at work, but you won't offend anybody by wearing your glasses um, or high heels, for example. So it's these stereotypes about what a woman is expected to look like. You know, I used to try lawsuits, you know, many years ago, and um, I was mostly the only woman lawyer, and I saw a lot of different men in courtrooms, just as I've seen men in political life. And men are allowed to come in all shapes and sizes, all forms of dress, all kinds of presentation. But back in the day, so long ago, it's lost in the mists of memory, those of us who were in the professional world in the you know 70s and 80s, we had to figure out what our uniform was. And so we would wear skirt suits with white blouses and ribbons tied around our necks in bows so that we were trying to figure out how to look professional. And there were many aspects of that, that effort during that time that looking back on, you think, you know, wow, but we didn't know. And I, I, I'll tell you just a little side story. So I remember there used to be an advice column in our local newspaper in those days um, by a man. I think his name was John Malloy, I think. Anyway, he would take advice to offer people in their work lives. And I will never forget reading a question that came in, and it said something like, 
I've just gotten a big promotion. So for the first time, I'm going to have my own office. And I'm trying to figure out how to decorate it. Do you have any advice? Sign like TJ. So the answer goes like this. Dear TJ, I can't tell from your initials whether you're a man or a woman. But my answer would depend upon which you are. Because if you're a man, you want to put, if you have a family, pictures of your family in your office because people in your office will think you are a reliable fellow, that you are working for the betterment of your family. So put up pictures of your children, your wife, and others. If you are a woman, do not put pictures <laughs> of your family in your office because people will think you can't keep your mind on your work. That's the kind of stuff we were trying to make sense of back then. So thankfully, fast forward, there's a lot of difference now. People can, you know, they have a greater range of what they can wear and look and all the, all the like. But I do think that there are still expectations. So when you say looks, it's kind of conventional attractiveness that people are talking about as they define it. And do you think the men come in all shapes and sizes extends to men can have all sorts of hair and haircuts? <laughs> I, I think that's a really good observation. Uh... <laughs> Another aspect of our surveying where I think, I think people have got this right, they said that they think personal connections are a bigger factor in getting ahead for men than women. The boys' network, is it still there, still in the way of women? Oh, I think so. I mean, I think that's a kind of self-evident answer because there still are many more uh, readily available connections still for men. I think women are getting better about that and we're certainly trying to do more to help uh, young women open doors for them, make references for them, etc. But I do think that the pre-existing work-related networks heavily favor men. And, you know, it's, it still is true that oftentimes in a workplace, and I, I saw this and, and lived this, you know, when the workday ends, especially if you have children, you need to get home. You have things to do. You have, you know, babies to take care of, children to, you know, feed, uh, homework to supervise. And so whatever happens after the work hours that create bonds and networks, you're most likely, once you are a working mom, you're going to miss out on. And that's not the same. And I don't mean to pick on Japan, but it's such a ripe territory right now because of some of what's going on. So the current prime minister, Abe, actually came to see me after he was elected to talk about what he could do because Japan's had a long period of stagnant growth. And they, like any other sensible country, was asking themselves, what can we do? Now, there are two immediate answers that would have sparked greater growth. He was well aware of them. One was more immigration in Japan, which apparently was a no-go. And the other was get more women in the workforce. So he was really interested in talking about how do we get more women in the workforce because every country could actually increase their GDP if they knocked down barriers. Some countries could increase it by 40%. Some could increase it by 8%. You know, some of it has to do with not only ending laws and the like, but also you know, affordable quality child care and other uh, support systems. So Abe really tried. I mean, he had a whole big agenda about it. But the way Japanese society is structured, women, once they marry, are responsible for their children and the elders in their family. And it is more than a full-time job. 
and men are expected to socialize after work. I mean, these are generalizations, but they're close enough. And that means going out, going out to dinner, going out drinking, often not getting back till, you know, 10 o'clock at night, maybe seeing your family then, like, on uh, Sunday of the weekend. So it's really clear that these networks are important. People want to know who they're working with. They want to know what kind of person you are. They'll love it if you play golf, if that's what they're interested in. So, yeah, the networks that do exist favor men for all the obvious reasons, and therefore there needs to be a more concerted effort to construct and and nurture these networks for women. And we're going to turn now to your book that is on display here that you've written with Chelsea, The Book of Gutsy Women. Uh, But before we do, I think people would want to hear from you about how you've been a gutsy woman. Many of us, uh, when we watch the election results um, come in, I was in Australia and I remember as the results come in very, very clearly, I'm sure most people in the audience remember where they were when the results of the election came in. How did you get over that? And here you are talking uh, knowledgeably, frankly, about world affairs, still interested in ideas, still questing for change. I think people are in awe of where that energy and determination comes from. You know, what enables you to keep going day after day, cause after cause? Well, I I never saw it as primarily about myself. I saw, obviously, I was the candidate. I was trying to run and win an election. But it was about what we would do and and how we would do it. I'm very motivated by that. I mean, I, I, I like to solve problems. I like to bring people together to convene them, to think about how we best solve problems. Uh, that's what lights me up and gets me up and going. And so I never dreamed about being president when I was a little girl. I never thought I, you know, would or could be. And for me, it was, you know, the, the idea of building on the positive things and fixing the problems that uh, we had inherited in our country. So, of course, I was devastated. It was, it, it was such a shock. I mean, I, I can't even describe to you how it made no sense. And that's why I wrote a whole book called What Happened, because I was trying to figure out what happened. Because it, it was just not foreseen. It, there were things that went on that made no sense to me and others, uh, unprecedented interventions, uh, etc. So it was really difficult getting up that next day and going and uh, delivering a concession speech. And I was particularly feeling the burden of having disappointed so many young women and little girls because my campaign was filled with young women and particularly little girls, literally from like four to 12, who would come to see me and who you know, would dress up like me or would say that they wanted to be president when they grew up. And so I knew there was all of this, this new thinking that uh, the campaign had brought about. So I addressed you know, all the little girls out there, telling them not to give up on their dreams, whatever their dreams might be. But because I was trying to figure it out, I dove deeply into what was going on. You know, obviously mistakes that I made, uh, misjudgments, that was all fair game. But trying to understand what else had happened and, you know, the role of technology, uh, the intervention by uh, the Russians, which is not at all deniable. I mean, the, the conclusion that they conducted a sweeping systematic attack on our elections can only be denied by people who literally refuse to look at evidence. So there, there was a lot that was not just about 
that election, but about going forward, what were, were we going to do? So I, I feel like every day I get a chance to talk about some of these issues, work with other people. I started an organization to support uh, young people running for office, people of color, uh, particularly women out there running for office. I've helped a lot of candidates, a lot of causes, both in 2018, and then we recently had some elections in 2019. And as a former Secretary of State, it is especially troubling to me to see the role that the United States is both playing and refusing to play in the world right now, because I think it's made the world more unpredictable, less safe. And these are all matters that I don't think I should address just because I'm a former presidential candidate. I think, you know, people of concern, citizens uh, in our country, your country, in democracies need to be addressing. So that motivates me and keeps me going. I just, before we... Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Turn, turn to your best story from Gutsy Women. I do don't want to just explore that point about the dreams and aspirations of girls and how you felt that because I've actually thought about this a lot as even before I knew you personally, I watched your political career and felt invested in it and, you know, there were times when I was barracking for you, there were times when I was crying for you because things hadn't gone well. And I hoped that you felt that support from women around the world. But I also sometimes think, did we, have we, are we still putting too much of a burden on your shoulders? I mean, it's a lot to carry the expectations. You know, you're a truly global figure to carry the expectations of women around the world. How have you lived that duality, that, you know, sort of support that's there globally, but also I think the burden that can come with being the custodian of so many people's dreams? That's a a really profound question. You know, hardly a day when I'm out and around goes by without somebody saying something like that to me. For about two years, they would also burst into tears and sob on my shoulder. Um, So I am very well aware that it wasn't just me and my election and then the failure of that effort. It was because people were seeing what I was doing on a very high stage under a bright spotlight as some kind of beacon or guide light to what they were doing or thinking about. You know, I I had a woman here in London stop me and tell me uh, that, you know, because what she saw me doing, she made some very difficult decisions in her own life. So I know that I am out there and people often both project onto me, making me better or worse than I actually am as a human being or a public figure. But I also know that they are internalizing a lot of it and trying to think through, you know, what can I do? And it's one of the reasons we actually wrote this book, because it's also very common when I'm out, and, and increasingly it even happens to my daughter, where young people, mostly young girls, will come up and say, 
Uh, you're my hero. Who are your heroes? Or, you know, I've looked up to you. Who do you look up to? And it's a conversation that Chelsea and I started when she was a little girl because I wanted her to have a lot of role models. I wanted her to see women doing different things and the choices they had to make and the, and the trade-offs and the sacrifices. So we decided to write this because I was well aware that there was a big letdown and a lot of disappointment. And I didn't want people to give up or be discouraged. I wanted them to you know, be courageous and resilient and, uh, in our word, gutsy. Um, so by telling the stories, not my story so much, although there's part of that in there, but the stories of other uh, women and young women, uh, like Greta Thunberg or Malala, who kept persevering despite setbacks and, and attacks of all kinds, including physical, I wanted to have in one place you know, about 100 stories where people could say, hey, I can relate to that, or I get that, or, or wow, I never thought about that. Because in this environment in which we live, this 24-7 you know, news information overload, it's really hard to sort it all out and to make sense of it and to apply it to your own life. So this is our effort to, you know, kind of give people, you know, something to hang on to, uh, some story that might have meaning to them. And you're amongst friends in a very intimate audience. How good a co-author was Chelsea? (laughs) Well, let me say that it was mostly a joy. (laughs) And I think harder on her than on me. We made lists of hundreds of women that we wanted to include, and, and some of the women on my list she'd never heard of, and some of the women on her list I'd never heard of. So we had to sort all that out. We wrote over 200 essays, and then our editor said, are you kidding me? You've got to cut that in half. So that was another hard process. But if Chelsea were sitting here, she would say the biggest challenge to her is that I write longhand. Now, the first event we did about the book, we could literally see younger people turning to others saying, what's longhand? <laughs> And that's the way, you know, we used to write with, you know, quill pens. Um, (laughs) So I've just always, for long-form writing, found it easier to provoke my thinking by writing longhand. And Chelsea just could not get over that. Now, she would also embarrass me tremendously by saying, yeah, she would write a page and then she would take a picture of it and send it to me. Well, yes, I did, because that's how we traded information. And then she would say... But I didn't think that would happen when we started editing. She said, you know, Google Docs are your friends, and track changes really work. (laughs) Anyway, we got through it. Um, (laughs) But that did have for some, you know, tense late-night conversations, I can't read what you've written. (laughs) So, you know, it was... was by far a a wonderful experience. And then we've been traveling around. We went all over the United States. We were here Sunday and Monday uh, for events. And the good, the best part of it was that she brought her newborn, Jasper, who's three and a half months because she's still nursing. So we got to travel with my uh, grandson and that was a, a special treat. Fantastic. And I know that it's full of fantastic stories about gutsy women, but can you share one with us that's a particular favourite? Really, it's really, really hard. We categorize the women because we thought their stories sort of overlap, like, you know, earth defenders, uh, healers, uh, activists, elected officials. And literally, we could have had uh, so many more people, and we had to make some very, very hard decisions. You know, there's one woman who I always think about because, you know, when you wonder what you would do if faced with a really tough choice, 
one that puts your life in danger or the lives of people you cared about. I think about this woman named Dr. Hawa Abdi, who is a Somalian. She is an OBGYN physician. She was born to a family of means in Somalia. She left the country to get her medical education, but she came home to practice medicine and to care for women and girls. And then uh, Somalia was hit by a, a devastating drought, and then the explosion of violence uh, uh, largely motivated by al-Shabaab and Islamist jihadist uh, militia. So Dr. Abdi found herself on her family property taking in refugees, mostly women and children, who were being, you know, were fleeing their their little farms or their cattle had died from drought and they had nowhere to go or they were fleeing violence. At one point, she had 90,000 people on her farm. And so she had to organize to take care of them. It's not just providing medical care. They had to get food and shelter and all the rest of it. And then one day, Al-Shabaab militants showed up and demanded that she leave and turn over the farm to them. And she refused. And there were a bunch of teenage boys, basically, holding automatic weapons, telling her to get off her own property. And she stood her ground. It could have gone either way. And she not only said no, she said, what are you doing? What have you ever done to help anybody? And she basically shamed them into leaving. And she later was diagnosed with a brain tumor. She had to leave to go get treatment. Thankfully, it it was benign. She came back, and it happened again where a new set of militants showed up. She's still there. She's helped by her uh, two uh, daughters who uh, became doctors. But lots of times people think, like, you know, what would I have done in the civil rights movement or during the Blitz or at a terrible point of uh, conflict in my own life or anything that I have heard about or seen? And so I think about her because she was doing incredibly important humanitarian work and... Uh, she wouldn't be moved. And it was really an act of grace that they didn't just haul off and kill her because they saw something in her that really caused them pause, and they went away. So I, I really, there are a lot of women in this book who faced all kinds of terrible experiences and had to find an enormous amount of resilience and courage uh, to keep going. And we highlight a lot of their stories because they didn't just try to achieve something on behalf of themselves. They wanted to make a positive difference in other people's lives as well. And uh, I think we can all use a big dose of that right now. I think we can too. Thank you for sharing that inspiration. Can I ask you to join me in thanking one gutsy woman, Hillary Clinton? You've been listening to a podcast of one's own with Julia Gillard from the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London. For more information on our work and to sign up to our updates, visit the Global Institute for Women's Leadership website. This podcast has been produced by Lizzie Ellen and James Miller with King's Online and additional editing by Nick Hilton. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please rate and review us with your preferred podcast provider. We'll come back next time for another episode of A Podcast of One's Own with Julia Gillard. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes 
ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.